Second Peter, chapter 1. We're looking this morning at verses 3 and 4. But I'm going to begin by reading the ones at which we looked last week and then uh, segue on into the ones at which we'll be looking this morning. Um, Follow me as I read, and would you please stand as I read. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Amen. Thus far God's word. You may be seated. I used to work for a wordsmith, that is to say, a fella who loves words. He had the box set, two-volume Oxford Dictionary of the English Language behind his desk, complete with a little drawer at the bottom of the box in which there was a magnifying glass to use because the print in uh, those two volumes was so small that you could barely read it with the naked eye. And if he couldn't find the word that was best suited to the point he was making in the dictionary, he would construct one. So he'd, he'd find an appropriate root and then attach to that a, 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 a prefix or, or, or a suffix to his uh, liking. His assistant had her own big fat dictionary on her desk so that she could know how to spell or understand some of these words that he would use. I remember one day I was walking by her desk and and her dictionary was uh, plopped open and I stopped and asked her what she was looking up and, and, and she said, you know, he's been using the word inculcate quite a bit lately. And I just want to know exactly what it means. And so she looked at the definition and we found that it comes from the Latin inculcare, which means to pound down, and specifically with one's heel, to drive it in. And so this past week I looked up inculcate again and found that it's often used in Uh, relationship to teachers and their teaching. And my mind immediately went back to eighth grade and my math teacher, Mr. Dale Cope, who would inculcate into our uh, 12-year-old brains these little mathematical formulas. Every whole number is always over one. Every whole number is always over one. 
A times the quantity of B plus C equals A times B plus A times C. And then he'd climb up on top of a desk and he would say, when you are dividing fractions, you must always remember to divide the bottom number into the top. <laughs> and I just, I just remember he inculcated those into my brain. I remember my college football coach. Uh, anytime you would drop a pass, he would say, catch the ball, that's why we throw it to you. Or if you had the ball and you broke into the open field, he would say, use Sammy's sideline, which, which meant run to the sideline and use that as a line of defense. And then every Friday when we would come out for special teams practice, he was faithful to remind us, special teams wins games. Every Friday that was inculcated into our brains. Well, if there's one point that Peter wants to inculcate into the minds of his readers, it's this. God's people have been given everything necessary to live a godly life. And they've been given that for today in the knowledge of Jesus and for tomorrow in the promises of Jesus. Everything. Everything necessary. Maybe not everything you want, but everything that's necessary. Everything he knows that you'll need for a godly life. Because that's what that uh, phrase, life and godliness, means. And it's all found in the knowledge of Jesus. Not some kind of informational knowledge about him, but a relational knowledge of him. And so, like a kid with a stick going at a pinata, Peter begins to whack away at this point, inculcating this point by showing his readers how the knowledge of Jesus, it strengthens and it sanctifies and it shields his readers for today, leading him to conclude, even at the end of the letter, even in the last verse, therefore grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. While the promises of Jesus lend uh, this perspective on the future and patience and hope for Peter's readers, causing the apostle to confidently assert, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Chapter 3, verse 13. Why is it that there is nothing of any greater value in life than knowing that this truth is supremely important. Why is it? Because the knowledge of Jesus and his promises is in total the knowledge of God. And there's nothing greater than that. We see that in verse 2 where Peter writes of Jesus' divine power. We see it in verse 3 where he writes of Jesus' divine nature. To know Jesus is to know God. Jim Packer in his uh, classic tome, uh, Knowing God, writes this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? 
knowledge of God. John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God, Jeremiah 9, 23. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself, Hosea 6, 6. Once you have become, Packer writes, aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Because there is nothing of greater value in life than the knowledge and promises of God, it should not surprise us then in the least that there are those who are out there to corrupt them, to chisel away at them for their own greedy ends, because they have hearts trained in greed. Peter tells us that in chapter 2, verse 14, so that in their greed they can exploit you. Chapter 2, verse 3. And they do this in at least a couple of ways. They do this by false words. We see that there at the outset of chapter 2. And by way of sensuality. And we'll look at that uh, a little later on. So, um, what a morning. What, what great prospects. In just a matter of minutes, you can walk away with the assurance that everything you need to know to grow a godly life is found in the knowledge of Jesus. And that everything you need to guard that life to maintain its integrity and vitality from those who would get in and, and compromise it, corrupt it, chip away at it, is found in the promises of Jesus. That's good news. That's great news, especially if you're hounded by guilt and shame and you don't know what to do. In fact, you're in very good company. The fellow by whom this letter is written, Peter, suffered from that as well. Denied Christ at his greatest point of need and then was wonderfully reconciled by Jesus' invitation in John 21. Forgave Peter. He can forgive you as well, even this morning. Now, these things are nothing new to Peter's audience. He, he's only reminding them of what they already know. We see that uh, a little later on in chapter 1. He says in verse 12, uh, I, I'm writing this because I intend to remind you. In verse 13, to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, so that after my departure, that is after I'm dead, you may be able at any time to recall these things. In fact, the underlying current of 2 Peter and his first letter, at which we looked last uh, uh, spring and winter, is to stir up the memories of his readers by way of the knowledge of Jesus and that according to the Scriptures. Uh, we see that at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And the reason that Peter is passionately incessant about this is because what he is writing is true. It's true. And he says as much in verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. It it wasn't just Peter by himself. He was with others. For we were with him on the holy mountain. When uh, Jesus, Christ incarnate, was transfigured before them uh, there on the Mount of Olives. Uh, John makes the same point. At the beginning of his first letter, he says, man, we heard him, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands, we've seen and heard what we proclaim to you. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The apostles believed these things because they saw these things. They were witnesses. You know, we talk, or you've heard people talk about witnessing for Jesus. We haven't witnessed anything. But they did. And that's why the apostolic witness is so important. These things were and are true. And so to make his readers sit up and take notice of what he's writing, Peter begins in this uh, fresh kind of sit up and take notice sort of way. Uh, He doesn't begin this letter in uh, the way a letter of this time uh, is is usually begun, uh, stating the author's name and the audience and then offering a greeting and a thanksgiving. Peter dispels with the thanksgiving and jumps right in to the body of the letter with the grammatical volume and abruptness of the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Bum, 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 bum. Everything necessary for a godly life is found in the knowledge of Jesus. Bum, 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 bum. So there, there. And then he develops that in three points. In fact, uh, some scholars would say this is a, a mini sermon. Point number one, Peter's assertion. That's in verses three and four. We'll look at that today. Point number two, Peter's application. That's verses 5 through 9. Rob Lister is going to address those next week. And then finally, Peter's appeal. That's in verses 10 and 11. And Kenny Clark will look at those in two weeks. But what we want to do here this morning is uh, bear down on this first point of Peter's sermon, which is uh, there in verse number 3, where the apostle writes, that God's people have been given everything necessary to live a godly life in the knowledge of Jesus. Everything for today, everything for the now, everything for this hour in the knowledge of Jesus. It's not an acquired knowledge. That is to say, it's it's not one that uh, uh, you can go and uh, acquire through some sort of impersonal investigation you know, in the library, the lab, out in the field. It's not the kind of knowledge that you can go and buy. Uh, Rather, it's given by invitation. In fact, we see there at the end of verse 3, it's a personal invitation. This knowledge has been given, notice, by him who called us. Jesus took the initiative. It's all about him. And it's not just any invitation, it's a privileged invitation invitation. That that phrase, has granted to us, you see that there in verse number three, it bespeaks an imperial gift. 
a gift of royalty, an official gift, a gift of abundance. A friend of mine and his wife recently spent uh, an extended stay at a chateau in the south of France that belongs to one of his wealthy clients. And uh, concerning this visit, my friend was very clear. He, he could not have enjoyed it unless he was invited to do so because it was way beyond anything he could have afforded, way out of his range. He couldn't have afforded the location, uh, Provence, uh, double-gated security, um, uh, security officer on duty. He couldn't have afforded the contents of this chateau. And one example he pointed out was um, he, he was told upon his arrival, if you stay in Sergei's chateau, you must drink Sergei's wine. And he was handed a key to the wine cellar. And so every night, uh, Dinner was accentuated with an appropriate and premium wine of my friend's choice. In fact, he said to me, one night we had a $900 bottle of wine at no charge to him. Now, note well, uh, this guy, his wife, they're just like you and me. They live here in La Habra. In fact, they might even be here in this service right now. But he was treated far better than he could have ever treated himself. And the only reason God's people have everything necessary to live a godly life is because Jesus has invited, Jesus has called us to enjoy it. My friend, he enjoyed a cup of $900 wine. Jesus extends to us the priceless cup of the new covenant. What a beautiful thing. That privilege and personal knowledge should lead to a life that is worshipful because uh, that's what the word godliness there in verse number three means. It literally means good worship. A godly life is a worshipful life, a life consonant with Romans chapter 12 where Paul says that all of life is worship. So according to this verse, there is no excuse for not living a godly, worshipful life. Since that's the natural, or, or, or should I say supernatural response to knowing Jesus. Uh, Dick Lucas, who pastored St. Helens in London for 35 storied years, who celebrated his 91st birthday yesterday, who's still very active in pulpits throughout the UK, has said about this passage, we can't blame God for not making us godly enough or not making his will clear enough for we already have everything we need. Note well, merely by being a Christian, Lucas says, we're in touch with everything we need to live a godly life. So a godly life, a worshipful life, the kind of life that God expects of his people in total is the knowledge of Jesus. It's the knowledge of Jesus. That should lead to a godly life. Not the knowledge of Jesus plus 
something else. Uh, Plus prosperity, as seen on TV. Plus prophecy, that is some new extra-biblical word. Um, Plus pilgrimage. Uh, You can go to a certain city yet this year in Europe, and you can walk through four different doors that are only opened about once every 100 years. Nancy and I were in this city in 1999, and it was uh, one of those years that all four of these doors were opened, and they're found in four historic church buildings, and if you walk through all four doors, you're supposed to receive an extraordinary pathway to salvation. That is a reduced amount of punishment for your sins after you die. And the ironic thing is that this is a church that was founded by the author of the letter at which we're looking, Peter himself. But to this kind of thing, Peter would have said no, because everything necessary for a godly life, a worshipful life, is found in the knowledge of Jesus, period, full stop, sentence complete. So worshipful life is knowledge of Jesus plus nothing. Nothing more nor anything less. Uh, Because there's somebody here this morning who's probably saying, well, I, I don't think I have a relational knowledge with Jesus, but I'm here. Um, I try to do the right thing. Uh, I give it the office. Uh, no, no. The, the knowledge of Jesus is not a Gumby-style faith that, that no matter how it's twisted and turned is still in keeping with the original gift. The knowledge of Jesus must be received on his terms as it falls on the page according to God himself. Finally, we notice here in verse 3 that this knowledge is not only personal, it's not just worshipful, but it's also powerful. It's powerful. The the source of it is seen there in the opening words to verse 3, his divine power his divine power. And with that phrase, Peter makes two things perfectly clear. First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Peter states it here at the beginning of this letter. Paul states it at the beginning of Romans, that that Jesus was, and I quote, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Well, how how did the Spirit do that? How did the Spirit do that? Well, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, By his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus backed up his words by way of his actions. So Jesus' power put on full display at the empty tomb resoundingly bespeaks his divinity. Second, this phrase divine power reveals that Jesus is interested in bringing those who don't know him into relationship with him. And and we know this because that term divine power was more common among pagan Greeks than it was New Testament Christians. So Peter is writing here with unbelievers in mind. He's using words and phrases that they would understand. So 
this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you, if, if you don't know Jesus in a personal way, as he's revealed here, then please understand he is inviting you. He's calling you by way of his word to come into relationship with him. We also know this because a broader look at Scripture reveals that the purpose of his power, the purpose of the empty tomb, is, uh, is uh, to invite those who don't know him into relationship with him. Again, Paul puts it like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not just the Jews who get it, not just down-and-out Gentiles of the day, but everybody. Do you believe that? Well, Jesus invites you to believe it, to know it, and its power, and in it enjoy the kind of life that you have always longed for. So that's the first half of Peter's opening point here in this little mini-sermon. God's people have everything necessary uh, to live a godly life for today in the knowledge of Jesus. But they also have received everything necessary for tomorrow, for what's ahead, in the promises of Jesus. Uh, and, and, And that's all contained in verse number four. Notice uh, three things about those promises. Number one, these promises are given by Jesus. He has granted them to us. You see that there in verse 4. Second, these promises are very precious. Very precious. That's a word that communicates exactly what these promises are. Peter uses it in in other places. He uses it to describe uh, the faith of a believer there in verse 7, the blood of Christ down in verse 19. John uses it to describe the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21.11. Things that are invaluable, things that are lofty, things that are sacred. And then if the term precious wasn't enough uh, to describe the promises of Christ, Peter adds the adjective very great which uh, is a term uh, uh, bespeaking the, uh, 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 a superlative of sublimity. <laughs> it's, it's the Mount Everest of guarantees. Third, notice that these promises make God's people partakers of the divine nature, which means, like Jesus, in whose incorruptible divinity they now share, they have, according there to the end of verse 4, escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, Christians are perfect. It doesn't mean that Christians who think they're perfect are. But it does mean that a Christian who is relying on the knowledge of Jesus for today, the promises of Jesus for tomorrow, who by Christ's work and invitation is, is participating in his divine nature, is able to do things that others can't, like grow in his or her ability to resist sin, to extend authentic forgiveness, to live a life of contentment, 
to look to the future with hope. Because like Christ, he or she too is incorruptible. Some of you know my dad has been managing cancer uh, for a number of years now. And this past week, uh, a week ago Wednesday, he was told that all the different therapies he has undergone have now reached the end of their their courses or nothing else that uh, uh, will work. And so this past Monday, we visited with a hospice nurse and he's entering into palliative care. <clears throat> and so we were sitting in the den the other day and I said to him, I said, Dad, if we didn't have the promises of Jesus on our side, this life would rot. And he said, you know, you're absolutely right. It would. And because Jesus conquered death, saving my dad from its ultimate corruption, he was able to write to his grandchildren these words just a few days later. In response to this news, please know that I'm joyful and at peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 exhorts us to take joy in our suffering because God is building patience and endurance and character and hope, which can only be built through suffering. So, with joyful expectancy, I await meeting my Savior face to face. Now, those are the words of a man who has obviously been given everything, everything necessary to live life today by the knowledge of Jesus for tomorrow, which is coming quickly by way of his promises. Well, finally, as we uh, touched on at the outset of this uh, uh, talk, uh, the knowledge and promises of Jesus are the targets for false teachers. They love to hack and whack and chip away at these things. They're greedy for the blessings of God, but only in so far as it's on their terms. Like Balaam, of of whom uh, Peter writes, loved gain, this is chapter 2, verse 15, even if he had to get it from wrongdoing. So these false teachers, they challenge Christ's power in chapter 2 by blaspheming the truth. That is, the knowledge of Jesus, which is the source of a godly life, right? This is why it's so important to know the truth. So when it's attacked, you can recognize the attack. We need to read the truth. We need to sit under teaching that's consonant with the truth. We need to prayerfully live out the truth. Because those who don't know the truth run the risk of deviating from it and succumbing to the profligate lifestyle of the false teachers since they endorse passionate sexuality, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 and 18, exotic lust, chapter 2, verse 10, compromised marriages, chapter 2, verse 14, while claiming that none of these things have any bearing on one's belief. Okay, so I hear what you're saying, but what, I mean, what does that even look like? What does that look like today? Well, it looks like the pastor in suburban Chicago who published a book uh, just this summer, just in July, entitled Good Christian Sex, colon, 
why chastity isn't the only option, hyphen, and other things the Bible has to say about sex. And in it, the author claims that single Christians can have sex as long as it's mutually pleasurable and affirming. And that chastity is not about abstinence until marriage, but moderation. It looks like the growing number of pastors, even in evangelical churches, who are advocating what is referred to as a third way. A way in which churches can remain congregationally united while being theologically divided on same-sex relationships and behavior. Now, Peter pulls the veil off of these false teachers in chapter 2, verse 19, where he writes, they promised their followers freedom, right? Because they, they wouldn't advocate these things unless they, they were advocating freedom. But they themselves, Peter goes on to say, are slaves of corruption, For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Now, not only do false teachers uh, challenge Christ's power by undercutting his truth in chapter 2, they challenge Christ's integrity by scoffing at his promises in chapter 3. And that's why Peter is very careful to write at the outset of chapter 3. I want you to look at it here with me. Remember then the predictions of the holy prophets. There's the Old Testament. And the commandments of the Lord and Savior. They're the Gospels. Through your apostles. There's the rest of the New Testament. Knowing, knowing, knowing this first of all. That scoffers will come in the last days, which are our days, New Testament days. With their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So Peter's saying here, remember your Bible because you're going to need to know it when they challenge what you believe, when they challenge the way you live. And here's how they're going to challenge what you believe concerning the promise of a future hope. Take a look at the beginning there of verse number four. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. Which is what was presumably said to Noah, whom Peter describes as a a herald, as a preacher of righteousness, there in chapter 2, verse 5, as he built the ark. Peter explains that false teachers hurl these abuses because they're, they're actually deliberately overlooking something. They're overlooking the fact that the world which God created and judged in time by water back in the days of Noah is the same world that he recreated and will judge for all time by fire someday in the future. And we'll look at that when we get to chapter 3. And this is why Peter emphasizes the fact that God keeps his promises. And he wants you to know the one in whose name those promises were made. So he continues in chapter 3, verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So the Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, 
So all of this, you know, where is he? He's not been here. Everything's going on as it's been is actually a favor in their direction by God who is being patient toward them. He's patient toward you, he writes, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, when that day comes, it'll come like a thief. And then the heavens are going to pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, I would think Peter would answer the question, when is this going to happen? But he doesn't. Instead, he writes about, oh, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for, even hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, his promise, well, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's people, God's people have been given everything it's necessary to live a godly life for today and the knowledge of Jesus for tomorrow and the promises of Jesus. And don't believe anyone, not even your own serpentine self, your own midnight reasonings when told otherwise. This is the kind of life that God wants you to live. That's why Peter reminds us that he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. And today is the day of repentance. I think most of us remember where we were, not all of us, but most of us, 15 years ago today when we heard about uh, the news of 9-11. I was transitioning from a breakfast out with my colleagues to our weekly morning staff meeting uh, when, when we heard the news. And uh, one of the things I, I especially remember is after we all came together and, and were briefed on what was happening in New York and Washington and uh, rural Pennsylvania, I remember my boss, he was sitting in a, in a wing chair with floral upholstery. And uh, his head hit the back of the chair and he said, If all of this is true, it will be bigger than Pearl Harbor. And in the moment, I thought, well, how could anything be bigger than that? But it was. Well, two years later, I found myself working at Taylor University where we marked the second uh, anniversary of that fateful day uh, in a chapel that was held on the 10th of September, so the day before 9-11. And our speaker that day was David Beamer, the father of Todd Beamer, who was one of the heroes on Flight 93 that went down just outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And Beamer began his talk by asking the students and and faculty, "Um, do do you know what today is? It's the day before. And he went on to say that his son Todd could not have done what what he did on September 11th unless he was living the kind of life that he was living on September 10th. And so Beamer went on to make the point again 
and again and again. It's all about the day before. It's all about September 10th. It's not about 9-11. It's all about 9-10. Friends, according to his precious and very great promises, God has given us everything necessary to stand on the last day. But you will only stand then if you know him now. Because it's all about the day before. And he's given us everything necessary to do that and to live a godly life until then. But you must say yes. And so the question for every one of us this morning is, have you? And if you haven't, will you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, 9-11 is a day of bad memories. For everyone who was alive in this country, in the Western world, and beyond, and remembers uh, the events of that day, it was a day of death. But by the knowledge of Jesus and your great promises, today can be a day of life, a day of new life. And so I pray that uh, you would grant life, that your, that your invitation would be seen and understood and received, even by many in this room, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.